that Stewie and Matt McConaughey at a bar and he's like, you know, you're just awful. And Matt McConaughey's like, yeah, no, man, but they just keep throwing me money because I'm so beautiful. It's fine. He's like, no, you're really the worst. He's like, I understand. I, but, you know, the people want what the people want, so it's no big deal, you know? And he's, he, like, can't do it because he's just like, yeah, so they just keep sending me lots of money and putting me in movies, so that's cool. <laughs> that's like the L.A. is the Matt McConaughey of cities in America. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Drinking with Creatives, because Coke with Creatives was shockingly taken. My name is Jeremy Berger, and each week I chat with a professional creative, have a few drinks, and discuss the issues that they're facing. My guest this week is Daniel Brothers, a director of photography out in, you guessed it, Los Angeles. Dan's career has found him in some remote places in the world, lensing both documentary and fiction works. We're going to have a couple of beers and dive straight into, well, beer. Okay, my name is Daniel Brothers. I'm a director of photography. Right now I'm uh, uh, working for my wife. She's directing a documentary about uh, muralists in Los Angeles working in the Black Lives Movement. Um, and you can find me at my website, which is dannythedp.com, or you can find me in downtown Los Angeles. When I first started this, I didn't want to necessarily include the COVID-19 quarantine lockdown, but at the same time, how can we not talk about that? Uh, how do you think, if we were to come up with a vaccine tomorrow, if life were to resume normal operating procedure tomorrow, how do you think the production community would be changed moving forward? That's a good question. I'm going to start it by doing this. I don't know if this will come through, but... Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know yeah. what? That, that's on me. That's on me. Let me see if I can get my, cause I'm talking to you on a headset right now. So I'm just going to get really dangerously close. Good. In fact, maybe that's a better question. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, I actually, there's a great little beer shop in Eagle Rock called Talon. Oh, like, a, like an Eagle's Talon. Yeah. And, um, and we go there and it's a local business. They opened up a, a brew pub and beer shop right before quarantine. So they've been also, I'm in downtown with the door open, so you might hear um, marchers and protests out the window. But um, they, they opened up right before quarantine and, and then had to go on lockdown. But here in California, liquor stores were considered an essential business so they could stay open. And so it's this craft brew spot where I now like have become friendly with the owner because it was like, that's where I go. So I go and grab whatever I see. And I was in a hurry today and I grabbed something that looked pretty. And it's a beer from an Anaheim brewery called Bottle Logic. Okay. And it's called Dexterity Check, which is funny because if you know me, you know that I love playing Dungeons and Dragons. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's covered with 20-sided die. And I didn't realize any of that. Um, and so I just grabbed a four pack and it's a, it's a, it's a West coast IPA, 7.1% ABV. Excellent. Um, and it's, it's, and hang on. And it's delightful. Excellent. Yeah. It's Excellent. not too fruity. It's not like a juicy beer. It's a nice, it's a beer, it's a beer beer, but it's still an IPA. So it's got a nice hop profile. Fantastic. I have actually been mourning, at least on the East Coast here, we've been seeing a decrease in the amount of West Coast IPAs. Well, that's got to be the supply chain, right? I'm not <laughs> sure. Is it the supply chain or is it the demand? I think, so I think before we left in October, like mm -hmm. 
you guys were hitting a wave of New England IPAs, which is kind of like if you're in, you know, when in Rome, like why would you pull from like Anaheim or Seattle or, or, or Portland when you've got something from the alchemist right there, you know? Absolutely. And, and I don't have necessarily any kind of problems with hazy IPAs, but just every now and then, like as juicy as a hazy, as a nice hazy New England IPA is, there are sometimes I just want like a, cool crisp you can see straight through the beer mm -hmm. super hoppy uh west coast you know yeah yeah uh, right now my options for that are stone brewery oh classic oh so good which, which one I, there's there's the classic ipa that they got and then there's the um delicious ipa which isn't hazy but it's still got that like juicy profile and grapefruit character to it yeah i know it uh, um, and I prefer the classic because I can just sit there and just sip on it and it's just yeah. cool, clean, and beautiful. The session. Well, what I'm afraid of is before the craft beer revolution, you go into any bodega and again, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously New York centric here Yeah. and you had Corona, you had Budweiser, uh, you had Coors, and then on the craftier side of the things that they may or may not have had, you would have like your Negra Modelo uh -huh. and your Sierra Nevada and a Sam yeah. Adams. The Torpedo got me through my 20s. Uh, th the Torpedo <laughs> almost ended my 20s <laughs> with death. You're like, this is so good. I'll just have another. I know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I was first told about, and this was before I ever started brewing, when somebody first told me about a high gravity beer, Mm -hmm. I just assumed that somebody had just made it in the mountains, uh, you know, because <laughs> of the elevation. And I yeah, was, it's, I was there's stupid. less atmosphere. Yeah. 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 It's there's greater gravity involved. I assume that affects the process. And then yeah. I had to be driven home and I'm still apologizing for some of the things I did that night. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, but now I grow a little nervous because the craft beer revolution happened and now you walk in and now you've got this, somewhat wide variety of different offerings from a bunch of breweries you never heard of. Yeah. And now I go in and now I've got Budweiser, I've got Coors, I've got a variety of the exact same IPA. And then I got Sam Adams, uh, Brooklyn brewery and mm -hmm. uh, something else. So I'm just worried that we traded one homogeneity for another. Yeah. I think so. I think it's an active, an active, I know we're going to talk, we're talking workflow, but we're both beer guys, obviously. But I think it's an active rebellion right now to mm. go for like a weird porter or like a, a funky stout or even like, like lately I've been, we usually travel to Europe every year because we're mm. very luck, lucky people and have friends there and stuff. And awesome. everything I drink there are really light German pilsners because that's what everyone drinks there. Mm. And, um, and so now in quarantine, when we're obviously not going this year, when I'm like kind of missing the, the Berlin friends and stuff, it's like, get a Bitburger, you know, have like a, have like a little small glass of, uh, of like a, a, a German, um, what is it? Berliner Weiss. Berliner Weiss. Berliner Weiss. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I'm back, you know, mm -hmm. just by tasting that taste. That's like the taste of Europe to me. So. That's amazing. The, the I, drink I'm actually drinking right now. Uh, is a Belgian golden strong. Mm -hmm. I am, uh, while I have no problems like making an IPA or drinking IPAs or, or pale ales, 
yeah. any of them really. The 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 belt, like I will gladly pick up a six pack of Lefe Blonde, yeah, and just sit back and enjoy it. It's it's just such a different experience for me than a lot of the other things that we offer here in the states. Yeah, I mean the monks the monks kept the knowledge going. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's an old taste. Mm. It's a it's a classic taste. Yes, it's it it's and I find it honestly even like a touch. I hesitate to use the word mysterious, but it almost doesn't equal the sum of its parts. Yeah. You know, like, and it's funny, I'm, I'm online constantly with a friend of mine mm-hmm. and I keep telling him this because we, there's also the uh, Omegong Brewery and I, oh. I grew up in Utica, New York. So like yeah. every time we go, like, like I, my family actually moved down to North Carolina, so we don't get as much of a chance to go up there. But anytime we do go up there, we take the long way around through Cooperstown to just to stop at Omegong and just yeah. stock up. Yeah, and he and he keeps telling me how much he hates that their beer. He's like, I love the brewery. I just can't stand the beer. The beer tastes terrible to me. And then it was, was yeah. You know, everyone's got their own yeah, you know, taste. But he, he was kind of coming down a little bit hard on it. And then we just happened to randomly be talking, like not even about beer. We I think we were literally talking about fruit. He's like, oh yeah, I can't I can't do bananas. Oh uh... yeah. And then I I kind of took a look into that, and then he said something else. He was like, yeah, every time I have a banana, it tastes like soap. And then suddenly I remember that my wife is allergic to cilantro and to her cilantro tastes like soap. I have that though. I've got the cilantro thing. Really? But I don't have the banana thing. Uh, Well, it's two separate things. And I I asked him, I was like, wait, so when you tell me that Belgian beer tastes bad, does it taste like soap? He's like, yeah, it does. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're allergic to phenolics, which is the particular type of flavor compound that comes out from that. Yeah. So many questions answered. Okay, so so it's like me going to get tacos, and I love tacos, but then they put all the fresh cilantro, and I'm like, I can't eat it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, we've we've covered a whole lot of ground that has nothing to do with production. We have not even touched remote workflow yet. We haven't. We haven't. We've just we've just geeked out about beer. Imagine what we're gonna do when we talk about movies. I know. I'm 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 going to have to probably make this a, a an adjunct episode uh, into <laughs> and of itself. Uh, Dan and Jeremy discuss beer. beer, but let's let's talk about remote workflow for a second. Um, yeah. Because my and it's interesting when people ask how my life has changed since you know the shutdown, the answer is it really hasn't. I've been working from home mm-hmm. for the mostly for the past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, granted, uh, you know all those projects because a lot of them were in the middle of production when the shutdown happened, kind of came to a uh, you know a freeze. Uh, but have you seen any kind of? lead up to this has there been actually even before the COVID-19 shutdown have you observed any kind of move to decentralized production at all it wasn't decentralized production I was actually involved in some test shoots with frame.io um, hmm. and I think this is all out now so I'll just confirm it before you release Please do. this but Absolutely. Um, I know I know they're talking about it and saying coming soon and I actually got a chance to test the technology and um and they were already working really diligently on a, on a camera to cloud solution, which is a little different than your end of things. Cause usually I do some stuff and then plug a card into a computer into a hard drive and then ship it somewhere. And I never see it again. Hmm. Um, Cause that's when it, you see it. But hmm. the big thing is um, with a camera to cloud workflow, uh, which I think they've cracked pretty much at this point, um, any camera, no special equipment, and you're shooting over even a 4G connection into the cloud, into Frame.io, and it's 
and it's self-populating into your Premiere or your Resolve or your Final Cut X system as I'm as I roll run stop. Right. Wow. But it was really, really amazing to see it happen and happen. And they're doing it, you know, prepping for the rollout of 5G, but they're making it work over 4G, which, you know, we were, we were in a location that did not have Wi-Fi and it was working in real time. That's incredible. Um, which I think is a game changer because you're also doing, you know, if you're doing something scripted or something in narrative, you know, you can be doing an assembly as, you know, take by take. And instead of coming back the next day for pickups or whatever, you know, by the time you wrap that location, if you need anything else there, uh, which, you know, again, in terms of remote workflow, mm -hmm. I'm totally agnostic as, as the onset person where you're sitting. Like, I right. don't care. Um, what I need to know is like, if we've covered everything we need for this before we move on, and then we can never come back here and try to replicate this lighting setup ever again, you know, <laughs> please, please God, let's not. <laughs> So uh, that's, my hot, that's my quick hot take is like, you know, from my end, it goes into a black box anyway. And so if we can remove the step of me doing like a download, um, that's great. I think there's still room for a DIT in that uh, workflow uh, with the advent of like near set, um, setting a look near set, like near set CDLs being created. Yes, but you also want to have a DIT there as a contingency plan as well, I would imagine. Well, here's the here's the dirty little secret of it is what you're what you're getting is H two six four, H two six five proxies that that are that are, you know, proxies to my eight K or four K Oneg. So at the end of the day, somebody still needs to download the SSDs to a drive to a server and they need to go back to the post facility. Oh, okay. So in that case, the DIT is, is super important. We can't even discuss getting rid of them at all. No, because, because we're still like in the case that I was shooting, I was still working with a Monstro, mm -hmm. which in 8K three to one, mm -hmm. you know, red code. And that's a lot of data. That's a monster <laughs> file. Monster. And that's, that's not going to be transmitted over 4G, you know? So what's happening is you're getting the dailies with color and sound burned in in real time. And then we're near set downloading those cards and putting them. And then they, I mean, but here's where you get around it is those go directly to the post house and you never have to touch all that. You're only working with proxies. Mm. Um, and it's kind of then the, then the AAF or whatever goes over to the post house and, and it's up to them to sort it out. And as long as like that workflow is secure, um, it's kind of idiot proof, I think. You say that. I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing is idiot proof. Idiots yeah. get themselves into the strangest of places. Yeah. Um, the thing that I've been noticing more and more, and it's, it's, it is an interesting phenomenon because there was a certain part of my career where I worked almost ex not exclusively, but I did a great deal of work for an ad agency in South Carolina. Mm. Now, this was year, this is actually before my time at NBC. Okay. And this was back in the days before we had online reviews. It's before we had um, the ability, before we were even digitally delivering, we were still handing digibetas off to them, off to, because uh, it was all commercial production. So, yeah. but the interesting thing I found was that they had this very specific model for hiring, which is they would reach out to the ad agencies 
in New York, Miami, uh, Chicago, and LA, uh, and find the junior copywriter who wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> there, there are that art director, that creative director, they were, they had kind of just gotten the job. They were going to be in there for at least another five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. Reach out to these, uh, these people who were doing great work, who the rumor mill in the Edward was like, yeah, they did a lot of work on that project. A lot of the creative came from them. They'd say, Hey, come over here. We're not going to pay you more. It's just that what you're making in New York, LA, Chicago, Miami is going to go a lot further in South Carolina. Right. Right. And so that's, that's something that's, but, but this was happening even when workflow was centralized. Like, yeah, they were getting a lot of mileage off of telling their clients, we're going to get somebody from New York to come take care of us. Mm -hmm. What I'm interested in is when does that stop becoming a thing? When can we finally get a proper house in the country somewhere and I can do all my beer brewing in a backyard versus the galley kitchen that I've got yeah. right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, on, on one level that's arrived, like my first job in New York was as an assistant editor to a guy named Owen Plotkin, who's brilliant, this, mm -hmm. this shining genius. And um, he had a company, or he, he still has a company called the Now Corporation. Mm -hmm. And they uh, had a beautiful five-suite loft in on 22nd and 5th, um, like fifth floor or something. Mm -hmm. Just like the classic thing, the big windows that rolled up, uh, duct, exposed ductwork, and then glass enclosed edit suites. I mean, they did massive Burger King spots and Kleenex spots, and you know Super Bowl ads. You know, right. it was five editors, uh, and all of the editors were um, involved in the business. So, as an AE, like I didn't have a hope of moving up mm. until I brought in clients. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but it was great to work there because it was like cutting my teeth on all that workflow. Like we used to deliver three quarter tapes, you know, to the client, like everything you're talking about um, for review, uh, stuff like that. Uh, so I got my, I got my tape off chops there too. <laughs> and uh, and uh, um, yeah, like I just like digression. I remember when we like got our HD cam deck, it was like, Oh my God, we're going to do HD. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But about, oh God, he told me, because we're still in touch, it was like four or six years ago. They had been paying rent and doing great work for years and years, and their landlord came in and jacked their rent up to this unreasonable rate on 22nd and 5th. And he said, you know what? And he dissolved the office, and he was like, we're going to work in the agency or we're going to work at home. And so they've already been doing that for four or five years or something. Really? Yeah. And they're still delivering work. It's still the same five editors. I think they brought on one more. I think it's up to six editors. Still the same EP, uh, lean and mean operation. And they do great work. And they've been a, what does he call it? You, you got to look it up. It's the nowcorporation.com. And they call it like, he's got a great term for it, but it's an, it's an edit agency that has no brick and mortar. An edit agency. That's super interesting. It's something like that. You got to, don't quote me on that. You got to look it up, but he's like, we're a, I don't know. So he, yeah, he's brilliant. And like, he, he figured out a way to, to say, you know what, we're not going to stay in this like New York real estate 
rat race and like continue to do our art and do our work and push the boundaries, but not pay a million dollars in rent every month, you know? Absolutely. And that's one of the things I get most, I would hate to say nervous. I'm way more interested because I'm a renter. I'm not necessarily involved or or beholden to as far as anybody else is beholden to the new york state new york city real estate market right but what i am curious about because my wife is working from home now as well and she comes from a brick and mortar uh toy design uh company Mm -hmm. and they move her uh virtual most people i'm talking to have moved virtual a lot of people that i know that still work at nbc are all working virtually yeah. And I keep wondering to myself, you know, at least in my career, like I've seen the dot com bust, I've seen um yeah. the recession that happened after September eleventh, the two thousand eight housing crisis. It's just recessions are just like, you know They happen. They happen. They come yeah. they, they come and they go. Um but always the real estate market in New York City has barely been touched. Even during the housing crisis. It was yeah. barely touched. We're still an island that everyone wants to get to and we can't build out anymore because ocean. Yeah. And then I take a look at this current crisis. I'm seeing all these companies saving an incredible amount of money, a a mind blowing amount of money in real estate that they're quickly proving they don't need. And I keep wondering, can the New York real estate market survive a customer that says no thanks? No. And, and I think, I think the New York real estate market is a bubble. It's just a bubble in a different way than the rest of the country experienced in 2008. I mean, when, when you have something like 27,000 empty units in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. they're paying tax on that. You know, that's an expense to the, to the developer. And, um, and there's a limit to what they're willing, even if they're not like, even if they can afford it, there's a limit to the point where they're going to be like, okay, I'm okay with this until they try to sell. And then everybody's selling, you know, and it's like, and, and then the power I think is really always with the people, the consumer, the human beings, because you want to brew beer in a backyard, not a gala kitchen, right? If they take, if they take your job totally remote and you can move to a small town in upstate New York or Vermont or fucking Utah and, and pay a thousand dollars a month in a mortgage and have a good internet connection and do the same work you're doing now with the same team, why would you stay there? I mean, aside from the fact that New York is great and it's awesome and the energy is great, but I would even contest that because having spent my twenties there and then having heard about the stories of St. Mark's in the, in the eighties and things like that and the, the, mm. the vibrant artistic energy that existed in Allen Ginsberg living on 13th street and everything like that, that's mm. all gone. Like, those those great hero poets of our you know of, of the the myths of our youth would not be able to afford to live in new york anymore patty smith slept in Tompkins square park for six months or something yeah. you know and like that just wouldn't happen and so new york is awesome and it's a wonderful place but that mythology is just a mythology now and until until it's reined in and until it's affordable for people who live there, like the real people who live there, mm-hmm. um, then it is a bubble. It's like, it's not going to work. So, because you would rather be, have a backyard and, and brew beer there than like be in a 
be in a tiny apartment. So it's worth it to be in a tiny apartment if you're able to be totally artistically expressive. You know, if you're able to express yourself as a human, it's worth it to be in that flow and that magical New York energy. But if you're just like working two jobs and you can't do any of that, then it's like, oh my God, like what, where's the payoff, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a whole rant I have. No, no, I'm, I support you 100% in that rant, sir. Yeah, that's and that's why, that's why we're in LA because there's so much culture and so much weirdness and LA is such a strange place. And my wife and I between us spent, you know, combined like 16 years in New York and, and we're here now because it's like weird stuff's happening. People are expressive. You, you can still support yourself doing your like niche gothy, like, like once a week theater show or whatever you do, you know? Um, and it's going away. LA is still pretty up there, but it's just not at the same level as New York. No, I was, um, and I feel like everyone, especially when they enter into whatever aspect of motion pictures, Mm, that they right. exist always gets the option are you going to new york or are you going to la mm-hmm. everyone gets that question yep. my family is from new york uh but you know i got extended family over on long island i was i came to the city for a horror movie convention it was my father my parents uh 13th birthday gift to me to take me down here and like i fell in love with the city right then and there and like all jerks do uh, when they move to one of those locations is immediately start poo-pooing on the other. Yeah. Uh, which I have done, I, I will admit. <laughs> and then I actually got a chance to spend some time out there. We had, uh, my wife and I have a couple of friends who live out there with, uh, with their kids. And uh, several years ago, we got a chance to go out there. First trip to LA. And we went to, I believe, Santa Monica. We had a lovely time out there. And we're driving around all over the place. I personally hate heat, uh, especially <laughs> especially humidity like we have out here right now. And I'm yeah. feeling this like like it's dead summer in there. And sure, the sun's a bit intense and it's dry out, but I am not necessarily uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And while I'm in the car with my man, Justin, and I'm kind of rethinking this entire experience because I always heard about the traffic and there was some traffic, but it's not, you know, trying yeah. to get to... LaGuardia on a Friday evening. No traffic. You're like, oh, oh yeah. it, is, it is pretty chill. Yeah. Well, well he's talking <laughs> to me and he says, well, look, Jeremy, uh, what you got to understand is that LA is roughly, I forget the exact number. I think he said like five or six times the size of New York City, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it's only got half the people. <laughs> what? Yeah. And ever since that, I've, I've, I've held a special place in my heart for, for definitely for California, if not LA. Yeah. It's a special place. The, the funniest part about, you know, you were saying that like you, you move somewhere and you poo poo the other place. The funniest thing I've noticed is like in New York, we rag on LA. I've been up to San Francisco. They rag on LA in LA. They don't care. Like there's no like compare. It's like, what? No, nah, it's cool, man. Yeah. New York's cool. Sanford, SF is cool. That's fine. Maybe like they that's, don't care. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that maybe that's what we should have talked. We, you know, that should have been the um, metric we should have judged judged from uh, from the beginning. Okay, you want to move to New York, L.A., San Francisco. Okay, yeah. is there one they make all make fun of? You make fun of L.A. Who does L.A. make fun of? 
no, no one. one. Yeah. Maybe the place you want to go to is a place that has no complaints. Yeah. Do you, do you remember the, um, there's a family guy where Stewie is trying to insult Matthew McConaughey? No, I don't, I don't think I caught that one. It was just a flash. They do the little flashbacks. They like make a joke and then they're like, oh, it's harder than insulting Matthew McConaughey. And it's Stewie and Matt McConaughey at a bar. And he's like, you know, you're just awful. And Matt McConaughey's like, yeah, no, man, but they just keep throwing me money because I'm so beautiful. It's fine. He's like, no, you're really the worst. He's like, I understand. I, but, you know, the people want what the people want. So it's no big deal, you know? And he's <laughs> he like, can't do it because he's just like, yeah, so they just keep sending me lots of money and putting me in movies. So that's cool. <laughs> that's like the L.A. is the Matt McConaughey of cities in America. <laughs> And the the funny part is he's from San Antonio or, or Austin or whatever. So, <laughs> all right, let's let's talk production for a second. Let's mm-hmm. let's. I would love to. Um, Are we done with remote workflow? I mean, do you want to talk some more about remote workflow? Or is, is there something? I don't think I have anything else to say about it. I think it's an inevitability, to be honest. For for offline edit, I feel like it's inevitable. Um, for onlining, I think there's still going to be a very strong reliance on on good, po- good good post houses and good colorists, especially for feature films. Maybe less so for television. I think I think a lot of television is okay with a with like um, not that level of delivery. I agree. There's definitely yeah. There's definitely a consensus of what is acceptable and what is not in broadcast versus everywhere else. And I almost yeah. feel to a certain degree that there is the sliding scale of consideration between broadcast and internet is kind of starting to shift more towards internet. Uh And I say this knowing full well that ad execs who are buying airtime, that there's a certain gravita that's in there that is definitively used for a sales prospect. If you're an ad agency, it's one thing to pitch, you know, online viral media presence it's another thing to say we're getting a Super Bowl ad. So there's always going right. to be that dynamic. But yeah. um, that's, that's I, a segue into like my point of view on on the on the on the faulty view of internet viewership. Like, I think the power is in new media fully. Absolutely. And you know, I was advised for three years as their DP of digital. And while I was there, we saw a growth of up to eleven of of over eleven million subscribers on YouTube. And even the people that hated Vice Media would watch the whole video and comment, which is money. Um, and then while I was there, I saw, I saw leadership pivot away from delivering good digital documentaries and poor investment into the TV channel and the, and the movie studio. And how'd that work out for them? I mean... I haven't read anything on Vice Media in a while. Like, I still love the people that work there, but like, I know that they're, those are the producers that are fighting an uphill battle trying to get their, their documentaries greenlit. And in the meantime, like, I don't have Viceland on my TV, you know? Mm. Um, I don't know anyone that does that has that premium channel. And there's 11 million YouTube subscribers. Like, if I'm an advertiser and I'm looking to get eyeballs on my ad, like, a guaranteed 11 million views or like maybe some Nielsen ratings. Like, I don't get it. Which is kind of funny because Nielsen, I, and 
caveat here. I am not 100% clear on how Nielsen ratings work. Right. Except I've talked to several people who do, and they all seem to see, say the same thing, which is that Nielsen is a horrible metric for judging who's watching or how long they're watching. Yeah. Whereas the internet, you have that data freely available. Oh, it's all captured. Yeah. So why push for that? Why push from a solid metric that guarantees your advertisers, literally guarantees you a solid base of money yeah. into something that has more prestige than actual analytical value? Exactly. And with the internet, we frequently did A-B testing. So you could say which one's performing better and then deliver that one to the wider audience. And it's like, it's like what movies have been doing for years with focus groups. Like before they send a movie to theaters, they'll run it through a focus group. They'll do reshoots if they need to. They'll do pickups if they need to. Right. To get as many butts in the seats as possible, which is like, but except with that, you're paying everyone to show up and watch a film and then comment on it. And with YouTube, it's just right there and it's free. And that's the, that's and the system. And if you have advertisers, you're actually getting paid. You're getting paid to test your own product. Exactly. So I'm like, I'm blown away by I just think it's like not moving fast enough and people that have figured it out and embrace, like I think BuzzFeed did an incredible job of embracing the medium. I think they've mm-hmm. tapered off in recent years to where they were. Mm-hmm. But like, you remember when they put rubber bands on a, on a melon and it was like the most viewed video of all time. <laughs> like it was stupid, but they like understood the medium and they understood, they actually understood dramatic tension. If you think about it. Yes. Because they introduced, they built a system, they introduced variables in the system mm-hmm. that they couldn't control, and then they just let it go. And everyone was like, when is this thing going to explode? So, <laughs> and then it did, and, and there was melon everywhere. I don't know. So now we can say that BuzzFeed is the Gallagher of the internet? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except you don't need a poncho. <laughs> I don't know. Having good poncho around has always been beneficial. Um, you want to talk production? Let's talk production. Let's talk production for a second. I, and I kind of, and I'm glad we were talking about vice um, because you know, the two things I'd love to talk about, one of them is definitely uh, something I'm kind of curious about, uh, which is you started off in a very documentary orientated world uh, from a photography perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk, talk yes to me about your no. background of that. Okay. Go ahead. I, so I went to school at CU Boulder at a time when they still did everything on celluloid. Mm-hmm. And so my training was in shooting and editing actual strips of celluloid through various, you know, we had an Aton LTR, we had a, we had an area, we had an A minima and we had uh, Bolexes. Beautiful. And then we would do that. And also we were out of pocket on everything. They didn't pay for anything. So you had to rent the gear from the school. You paid for You bought your film. You paid for your film processing. And then uh, in the first years of it, you went down in the basement of this really creepy auditorium on campus where they had like eight flatbed editors. And you literally guillotine spliced your film together using work, work print. And then you screen the work print. Um, and I still have like piles of negative that is never going to be anything just because I cut the work print and then like, I'm not pulling negative and scanning it like for a student film. So I just have all this 16 millimeter sitting around. And then, um, 
and then eventually we would go and go to telecine and um and scan that so like my my training was in paying for my own celluloid films that were narrative which teaches you a lot about ratio which teaches you a lot about what you can do with what you have um and then we often shot our own stuff sometimes we'd collaborate and have a buddy shoot it or whatever so then I went to New York and I got into, while I was at NBC, which was largely unscripted, you know, local news stuff um, and lifestyle stuff. At the same time, I had a production company and we were doing music videos, corporate videos and short films. Um, so I've always had both tracks running. And then the first time I moved to LA, <laughs> uh, in 2011 i was still in post um i was still cutting a lot of reality shows and stuff like that but i wanted to get out of it because i just i was tired of being in the dark room and all of my friends were in camera department and they had just come up with this new position in camera department called the dit and because the alexa came out in 2009 before that you had your genesis and you had your not genesis um was it I don't know, you had your Genesis, your Viper Cam. You had some some file-based systems, but there was nothing like the Alexa. Um, and then I forget when the Red One came out. I think so, the Red One came out before that. I want to say the Red One was yeah. like 2008. Something like that. Something like that. It was, it was, that was, uh, my first Red One production was the first time I worked for the DIT. First right. time even he ever hearing about that. Right. Which and literally so at that time, I believe the DP on the project actually said i'll charge you a lesser rate if you hire this guy that's insane. because well it's in <laughs> they didn't know nobody knew well that's just it like like i was representing the production company in this scenario it was mm. a commercial shoot it was a regional commercial shoot in atlanta and the dp that I, that we used multiple occasions uh said uh, he said well, i have a red one would you like me to bring it would you like to use it we were like oh god yes yeah. And uh, he's like, great. Can I bring a DIT? And I said, what's that? He's like, well, somebody who handles it, you know, handles it. I'm like, well, the, the budget's kind of low. So I'm not sure. He's like, okay, hangs up, gives me a call back half an hour later. He's like, I will reduce my rate if you hire the DIT. And then I hired the D DIT yeah. and I was like, thank God. Thank God he talked me into doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, also, that, that would have been a nightmare otherwise. Respect to that DP too, to be like, this is just something we need to have. And, and probably like teaching you about new shit. Like we're going to adopt this new technology. This is going to be the way it is going forward. Yes. You know? Yes. I'm, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm absolutely thankful to him for it, but yeah. I'm sorry. So, Continue. So I became a DIT and, um, and I got to work under some really amazing DPs like John Golisarian and um, an old film school buddy of mine named Pablo Baron, who does a lot of really amazing commercial work. John, of course, does just stunning um, films uh, to this day. And uh, uh, I got to sort of like get some Hollywood chops through that in scripted. So I learned set etiquette. I learned how Hollywood crews do things, you know, which I didn't have from my production company in New York experience, which New York crews are great too. I just weren't on those. I wasn't on those crews in the scripted space. It's a different dynamic. Yeah. And, uh, and so I went through that for a while and then I was flopping between like shooting reality shows, DITing, um, uh, scripted stuff, 
uh, I'm giving you my whole CV here, but it all, it all links together. Um, by being a DIT, I got involved with um, Lightiron and, and Outpost University where they did like formal dailies DIT colorist training stuff. And so I went through that. Um, I'm sorry, is Outpost digital? Uh, it, I don't, I think it's different. They had a thing called Outpost, Lightiron for a while, and they might still do it, um, had a thing called Outpost, which was, they would send a cart, they would send a, like a DIT, this is before DITs had their own carts. So they had, you know, a big G5 Mac or whatever in a cart with the panels and with the Flanders monitors or the Sony OLEDs or whatever. And they would, as part of their post house thing they would send a dailies person slash dit to set for the dp and they would do near set color and then if light iron was doing the post on it it would be seamless because their person and their system you know brought in all that color and i think they were on pablo at the time they might be on with all now so it was a whole thing um but through that training uh i got hooked up uh with a producer I was basically sent out by Lightiron to to be their representative on a show, and the show was Cosmos, the um, Neil Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson show. Wonderful, great show. Yeah, and I wound up. Uh, I went out there to be a to do my DIT work, and they didn't have a DP yet. And then you know I kind of got the word that um, what's his name? His name's escaping me. He shot The Matrix. Bob um oh oh damn it well he he shot cosmos and he also directed several episodes and sort of the producer of cosmos kind of told me that kind of gave me the prom the, the hollywood promise that i'd be the dit once we started up but help him build the workflow beforehand right so i worked with him light iron and everyone else in that i can think of in LA and we we built the workflow and then when the day came to shoot it of course Bob had his own guy and I totally respect that but like I was like okay I quit you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been waiting around to work with you and I got to do a day with him camera test and that was really cool mm -hmm. um, but it was like all right I'm gonna go back to what I'm doing and not be like a workflow specialist which again all, all respect to workflow people but that's not what I wanted to do and that's not the track I was on so after leaving that, I, I suddenly, um, I did a couple more projects. My wife and I started producing commercials together, um, some of which I would shoot. Uh, and again, that's more the scripted space. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then through my reality shows, my, my boss at ABC Lincoln Square uh, wound up going over to Vice and she called me one day and said, just come work for me. And that was my first staff job of my life. And so that's when I got into like true hardcore serious documentary work. So I was there, a, le say, was there yeah. a learning curve in there? Was there some like, what was that experience like for you? Honestly, Jeremy, LX prepped me for it. Like doing the stuff I did with Siafa where we were bouncing around the country um, with Siafa. I don't know. Oh, I, I know Siafa. You know, yeah. I don't know how much we overlap, but. Um, Siafa is also, by the way, a very big beer man. Oh yeah. 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 beer suits shoes the man's the man's got taste let's yeah. just say he's got taste and he's got opinions um <laughs> so so we would bounce around and do all sorts of stuff and i would get artsy and i bought a 5d mark ii when it came out and so mm -hmm. i got into that 
whole thing. And so I was already interested in all of it. Um, and so when I went to Vice, I had this, uh, this backing of um, my high-end Hollywood DIT work. So I'd been on set with, with people using big Panavision cameras and stuff like that and understanding mm-hmm. what they were doing. I had my, my news, my ENG work. Um, and I was kind of like, what can I, and I, oh, and right before I got the job offer at Vice, I was a B-cam op on a, <laughs> on a straight-to-video Steven Zagal war movie. I did not know that. Yeah, and what? And it was like a 14-day shoot with a guy who does nothing but like Hallmark Christmas movies, and they did an action film this year for whatever, this one year for whatever reason, and they needed a B-cam. It was his 12th film of the year, uh, 12th feature-length film of the year, and I came in like and just like operated B-cam and was like, what's going on? And I got to watch that um, DP, who's this tank of a dude named Stuart Brereton, Mm-hmm. um british guy I think a british guy mm-hmm. uh and i got to watch him work you know and like be in his flow and that was really cool so when i when i got off the bus at vice media i was coming from this place of like okay i've shot a ton of reality shows mm-hmm. i've i've edited a ton of reality shows but now i understand cinematic hollywood workflow and i'm walking into this place that's still shooting on c300s with uh, L series 24 to 105s. Oh. And I was walking in as a director level, D- DP level position of the digital department. And I was like, actually, I started out on one show and then they gave me a department. And, and I was like, here's how we're going to do it. And so actually, I brought the narrative. The, and, you know, also, um, Jake and Jerry were already at Vice, um, Jake Burkhart and Jerry Ricciotti. And they're also incredible, incredible guys. And they were, they were on this, it was kind of like everything was happening at once. But what I brought to the digital department was um, this idea that like, we're going to buy some prime lenses. We're not just going to have these Canon zooms. We're going to buy, we got one of the very first, very first two commercially available C300 Mark IIs. They had just come out. I was like, we're going to be, we're going to be future proof. We're going to be 4K capable. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're going to shoot on prime lenses, good glass, mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to do this right. And so I think I think I brought some of the narrative elements. Um, also, Vice was totally nuts, and so people would like grab a camera and go to like North Korea. And when I came in with my team, I was like, okay, we're going to have like a prep meeting, and we're mm-hmm. going to talk about what's going to happen, and then I can like select the right equipment and be ready for what we're looking for and we can do better. How dare you? I know, right? And so, <laughs> and it started to go that way and as their branded arm has expanded, they've gone that way too. But, but I would say that I brought narrative into the doc space in that particular company, in that particular department. Um, and I was there for three years and we kept upticking and we kept upticking and I was given opportunities by being there to do a doc series on Heliums with where we were where we were using glass for expressive purposes. So we had one set of glass for one type of filming and another set of glass for another type of scene mm-hmm. and cutting that together um, and shooting on Amira's and shooting on, um, I wound up actually doing a doc series for them that will never see the light of day, but we did it on, the, on dual Panavision DXL2 medium format or large format cinema cameras. And um, 
back and up so, a second. Yeah. Why will that series need, never see the light of day? Uh, legal stuff. Um, yeah, legal stuff. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, we're just going to leave it at that. Okay. Um, <laughs> but there was a ton of money, and a ton of money was spent, and and um, it looks beautiful, and I have footage from it, and it's just never going to come out, which is too bad. Um, I, I'm sorry for that. That's that's always terrible. Hey, you know, so it goes. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, and then, so now as I tapered off advice and left and went back freelance, um, we did a, we did a feature, I did a few shorts and I kind of got to bring that sense of what I learned there from the doc style thing. And this might be the long winded answer to your question, but Mm -hmm. what I learned there from the doc style that I I developed with vice for myself personally and, and look, the place was crazy. And when you were on a shoot, camera was built lens was on batteries were full cards were formatted it was in your lap in the car seat when you arrived you bailed out of the car and you were rolling before anything else was happening right i mean it was like i mean there were times i managed to capture we were at the bare the first ever bare knuckle fighting championship and i managed to capture because i happened to be there and rolling camera because that's what i had learned the Mm -hmm. owner being served process papers by a competitor you know, like things like that would happen in the midst of all of this insanity if you were just in it and integrated and rolling, you know, mm-hmm. and if you didn't need to be fussy about where's my sound operator, and I love having a sound operator, don't get me wrong. Oh, and, yeah. And, and where's my AC and where's my extra battery? But, you know, I've got like packs on my body and I'm like in it and mm-hmm. I'm doing it. And the difference between that and ENG is I'm doing it, I'm doing it on a 35 millimeter Airy Ultra Prime mm-hmm. lens instead of doing it on you know the fuji zoom right i'm following a character instead of following an event you know i'm in i'm embedded with this human being we're we're part of it and he's acknowledging me as the camera person you know and that's that's the separation and i think that's what translates really beautifully to narrative Mm. is that when you get bogged down in what lens you're going to select and what the lighting looks like and what everything all that stuff's really important but the most important thing when telling a story is that actor's performance yes and if that's falling flat if if the scene isn't right like it doesn't matter if you have the best lens in the world Mm. like it's not going to work so and then on the flip side of that it doesn't matter if you have the worst lens in the world if you've got the best actor and it's all happening and you're present with them Mm -hmm. it's gonna it's gonna land talk to me about that talk to me about being present with the actor well, I, so my current theories, and I'm always learning. Of course. Of <laughs> but course. My, my current theory is that um, my team and my equipment and my, what I'm bringing to the table as, as, a, as a DP and a camera person, because I operate everything myself, mm-hmm. is that I need to be not only collaborative, but it's not about me. And it's not about the camera. And it's not about the light you know, mm-hmm. and it is about all of that stuff for my job. So I need to make sure it's right when they step on set. Um, but if it's not and they step on set and they're ready to deliver, then that's what it looks like. Like you don't hold it. You don't hold the, hold the take, you know? And so with that in mind, like my current obsession, even though I'm not really working through quarantine is, but my mm-hmm. theoretical mindset obsession is thinking about ways to minimize 
my footprint in a way that doesn't sacrifice the image that I'm looking for. Because if, if I can do that and an actor can like understand that I'm doing that, you know what the doc stuff also brings to it is like non-actors, people who are in the world, they're giving up a lot of their agency to appear on camera. And it's a scary thing. And it's, um, it's difficult, like it's a big deal. And people react in all sorts of different ways. And I found during my time doing documentary stuff, if, if, I could, if I could make as little camera between me and them as possible, they could feel like they were relating to me instead of trying to perform. And there's a fascinating book. I think I have it right here next to me. Um, it's called Learning How to Ask. Yeah, it's by Briggs, something, something Briggs. It's called Learning How to Ask by Charles L. Briggs. Um, and my buddy Jason Fox, who's a brilliant documentarian, gave me this book years ago. But it's a sociological study of people trying to figure out how to conduct studies, how to conduct interviews um, with native peoples who speak languages and have cultures that are dying out. That sounds incredible. And the, the, what they ran into is in the structure of any interview, which I would argue is the structure of any even camera performance, whatever. Mm -hmm the person being interviewed necessarily gives up a certain amount of their agency and power in order to deliver what the interviewer is looking for. Like the entire structure of it is a power structure. Absolutely. And, and so if you're a sociologist or an anthropologist, in order to get the purest data, mm -hmm. you're contaminating the data by just being there. Yeah. Like you, you can't observe it without messing it up. And so, this study was about the best ways to go about conducting an interview in order to, um, in order to get the purest data representational of tribes that were uh, understandably wary of outsiders, you know? Absolutely. I believe that was also kind of one of the components for Hunter S. Thompson's Gonzo Journalism, which was a recognition, or God, is having a word? Yeah. The recognition, excuse yeah. me that once the journalist shows up, uh, the evidence is already contaminated by their very presence. I mean, it's, it's in physics too, isn't it? Um, with, the, with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I don't know enough about it to be able to necessarily comment, but I've certainly heard about it. It's a principle that says you can either know where something in space is or how fast it's traveling and neither both at the same time. God, okay. <laughs> God. So, yes, um, please continue. But I do the, love the, the physics, so please yeah. continue. <laughs> the, the, the fallout of the principle is that by observing something, you change it. Um, yes. And I, I think it leads to, and again, don't, you'll have to look up the papers on this one, but um, I think it leads to on a quantum level, our, ob our observation um, can alter the state of being of something because, you know, Schrodinger's cat is in the box and it's both alive and dead. Yes. But it, it's, all the, it's all the, until you open the box, it's neither or both. I mean, once somebody brings up Schrodinger, it's, it's, it's just a downhill spiral from there. But it, it counts with, with what you're doing with actors and non-actors. It's like no one is going to behave the same way in front of a camera that they would without the observation. Mm -hmm. And so my current thought process, and maybe we could poke holes in this right now, but my current thought process is that if I can minimize the presence of the camera in the space mm -hmm. and of the artificial lighting and of all of the stuff going on around it, uh, we can we can be more free 
the, the, the person who's appearing will, will have the agency and power within themselves to feel more free to express the way they wish to express themselves. Well, then let me ask you a question in that regard. Mm -hmm. Given that practical philosophy, would you choose a better zoom lens or a better prime lens, given that one affects your physical presence to the actor versus the other? I mean, it's a case by case basis. And, and a lot of those decisions are made in prep with the, you know, I'm, I serve at the pleasure kind of of the director, you know, gotcha. and so, and so the first consideration is that prep and, and deciding how we want it to look and how we're going to do it. Um, of course. I'm, but I would ask you like of that, you personally, let's say you were the director. Okay. I, I mean, would you prefer in general, I prefer prime lenses. Okay. Uh, I feel like the less, this is like kind of metaphysical tool, but I feel like the less pieces of glass in between me and the real world, the more real the representation is. And if I'll I support that. A, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll back you up on that. Absolutely. Yeah. If I can have a 50 millimeter that has three or four elements mm -hmm. or a zoom that has 11 to 14 elements, mm -hmm. that's, I mean, light is bending less to get to the sensor or the celluloid. Absolutely in the 50 millimeter. Um, I also love a normal lens on, on a full frame 35, 50 millimeter on a crop frame, 35 millimeter on super 16, it would be a, a, a 25 millimeter lens. Mm -hmm. But the thing that is most representational of the human eye, I love, I, I, I carry around a 5d and I shoot with a 40 mil on it all the time because it's just slightly wider. Do you find that working in the real space versus the uh, imagined space, do you find that the skills inform each other or is it more on one end than the other? Nine times out of 10, I think they, they inform each other. How so? Uh, well, photography is photography and, and your approach matters. And Bruce Gilden can walk up to strangers and stick a camera in their face and get the most amazing photographs and someone else like I would do that and get punched in the face. You know, so the photographer matters. Yes. Um, I would say it translates with the caveat nine times out of 10 uh, with the caveat that um, it depends on the actor. Mm -hmm. And there are actors out there who are just stunning, who in any conditions, in any situation can step up, deliver, mm -hmm. deliver for the take and then walk away. And it's, it doesn't matter what's going on. But for those that need a little more like ambiance, I'm going to call it. Mm -hmm. I think those skills translate from documentary to narrative and back um, because it is nurturing. I mean, it's essentially nurturing and it's essentially, even if you're not transferring power, making your subject believe that you're transferring the power to tell their story to them. Mm -hmm. um, Cause you're, I mean, as the camera person, you still make the choices as the director, you're still going to call cut when you call cut, mm -hmm. uh, but, but making them, motivating them to feel like they can express what they need to express. And in the case of documentary, it's usually expressing something honest uh, from within themselves. In the case of narrative, I think it's the same thing, but it's using words that have been written and sort of creating the sense of an honest emotion or feeling an honest emotion, you know, in a, in a, um, in a more contrived space. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as like my job, I don't, you know, beyond the, the decisions the director makes and I make and we make together uh, to get to make sure the shot works the way we wanted the shot to work, I, I feel like the, the, um, 
the energy of the exchange needs to be the same. Awesome. Yeah. And it is an exchange. Like as a camera person, like there are people I think that are comfortable hiding behind the eyepiece and not participating. But like, actually, I take that back. I don't know anyone that's that I that I know that does that. Every camera person I know, and I say that for DPs, operators, um, even assistants, like you are the last line of defense in between the gritty world and the camera world. Like there's mm -hmm. no one standing in front of you when you're rolling. You know what I mean? And so you form a bond with the people that are in front of you. And whether that's for a take or for 10 minutes or a day or six months or whatever, hmm. like there's a connection there and, and that rapport is important. You could call it rapport actually, I think. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not comfortable for anyone to have somebody show up who they've never met before and point a giant piece of glass into their face yeah. and ask them to be vulnerable. Yeah, tell me about your deepest, darkest secret. Yeah. Can you say it again, please? Uh, yeah. <laughs> also, hi, it. I'm Dan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I hate it when people say, can you, can you say that again? I'm like, I was rolling. I got it. Mm -hmm. Like, we have it. <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop torturing this person, please. Yeah, leave him alone. Jeremy <laughs> might need that extra take, but he doesn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are a DP. Um, <laughs> I also want to call it just like in the sense of, of both narrative and, and unscripted. Um, well, I, I hate calling it narrative because like documentaries have narrative. So I like to call it like scripted and unscripted. Fair enough. Um, in, in the case of both of those, I'd like to call it bedside manner. As a DP, it's not my job to extract things from our subject or from our actor. That's the director's job and they need to de decide the best way to do those things. Yes. So in that sense, I become kind of like the ICU nurse, you know, mm -hmm. where my bedside manner is going to determine how that person feels. Um, and then it's up to the doctor to like make the decisions and discuss with them the best path going forward type of thing. Maybe not ICU, maybe that's dramatic, but, but you know, the, um, the elective surgery nurse, maybe. How um, dare you discuss anything dramatic and anything related to <laughs> either documentary or narrative filmmaking? How dare exactly. you? So, so I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like, I feel like bedside manner is the right word for it. I also, because ultimately I serve at the pleasure of the director, the ultimate place where I take my cue for bedside manner is from them. And if they're needing to be confrontational with someone, maybe it's an actor to get the right thing out of them. I can't then go and be their friend. Like I, and I don't need to be mean, but I do need to like close up and be like this, you know, you don't have a friend right now. Um, and it's kind of on me to kind of interpret. If we, if me and the director haven't had that conversation, it's on me to interpret what's happening in real time and say, you know, we need to withdraw for a moment or, or, or be present for a moment. Um, or God forbid, I don't trust the producer or director and, and be like, I need to be your friend at this moment, you know? So I think, I think it comes, it's coming at me from both sides, maybe. And we're also talking about something that has its roots in, I would imagine the word would be intimacy. It's a good word. Uh, we are ultimately like recording people for ever at this point. I mean, God, if it goes online, it's definitely forever. We'll be able to pull that footage up at any point in time. Yeah. At the same time, actors absolutely need to 
feel safe in order to feel vulnerable, therefore acting and reacting to their other co-stars in the story in their own imagined scenarios. But isn't that why we love movies? I mean, isn't that, I mean, you, you work to create moments of intimacy, essentially, like whatever emotion you're, you're building into a scene, mm-hmm. you're, you're building towards something that the viewer feels like they can resonate with. Absolutely. God, this got so deep so quickly. I keep forgetting that I'm drinking. God, <laughs> horrible. I mean, I want to be clear. I'm not thinking about all of that when I'm like standing on set, like, you know, <laughs> but, but that's the theoretical basis for why I like to be a camera person, you know? Okay. Uh, when I'm on set, I'm usually like, oh shit, is it in focus? Where's the head? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Thanks, Dan. Part two will be up next. For more, check out www.dannythedp.com. And for more links of what we discussed here, head over to www.drinkingwithcreatives.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and download on whatever is your most favorite listening platform. I hope you enjoy the show, and I'll see you next time.